New series at the porch. Welcome, friends in the room. Friends at Fort Worth, the Houston, Austin, Corsicana, and the different 15 porch live locations. We are kicking off a new series called Before There Were Kings, where we, for the next handful of weeks, are going to look at a, a number of stories inside of the book of Judges. If you are anything like me, this will be your very first series on the book of Judges, but there's some incredible teaching and truths that are in there. Hey, let me start tonight by uh, addressing this. One of the things that if you have children someday, maybe you have children or you're listening to this and you have children, uh, you're going to have to navigate is all around how do you handle the whole issue of Santa Claus? And are you going to be the parents that are like, hey, we're doing Santa Claus? Are you going to be the parents that don't do Santa Claus? There's really hot sports opinions as it relates to what you should do. And uh, so likely if you whether you decide to or not, you're gonna have somebody like that's a sibling or someone in your community group or someone in your life who's gonna have a very strong opinion in the opposite direction, which always makes for interesting family get-togethers where they're like, yeah, we love our children, so we don't do Santa. And you're like, awesome, okay. And either way, you're gonna have to kind of navigate through that if it's part. If you stop and think about it, and this isn't a knock on Santa, we do Santa. Um, it's kind of a funny deal that all these different people in society and culture and parents in general are kind of like playing this whole game uh, or promoting this lie that everyone knows is not true with kids. Where we're like, yes, yeah, Santa, it's awesome, he's out there. No, he's not, and this is not real. And yet everywhere, everywhere you look at society, it's just kind of a part of the culture and it's something that we promote. And again, my point is not to knock on Santa, it's just like we kind of all play this game. And if I'm bursting your bubble right now and Santa, not knowing that Santa's not real, this may not be the place for you. And <laughs> either way, uh, it's just it's this phenomenon that when you stop and think about it, it's just kind of a funny deal that we all get into and we, we pull this prank on everyone fifth grade and under. And, um, and the reason I start there is just because like in that same way that they're promoting this thing that we kind of all know is not true. Maybe we wish it was true and there was some guy that lived in the North Pole and was making presents all year long. We, we, we really all know that's not the case. There's other things in culture where uh, we similarly promote and suggest and even throw out there and try to get people to believe that, hey, this is a truth or you should embrace this idea. One of them that I want to talk about tonight is uh, something that you may not have ever thought about before, but it's just this. It's this idea that's being promoted that is similarly not true, which is, hey, follow your heart. The key to success in life the key for you to be all that you're intended to be is for you to be someone who follows your heart, follow your desires. It's something that we tell children and something you've probably heard a ton of. It's something that if you watch any amount of you know, entertainment, Hollywood, uh, TV, celebrities, you're gonna hear this idea of, hey, follow your heart. You may hear different variations of it. Always be true to your heart. Follow all the things that, that you're intended to be. Don't let anyone tell you who, uh, who you should become. Just follow your heart. And it's, a, it's kind of an interesting phrase because you go like, well, what does that actually mean? Like follow my desires, follow kind of the things and feelings that I have, the emotions that I have. And the reason I say that it breaks down and we kind of, if you stop and think about it, you go, man, I don't know if that is actually true. And it's certainly not applicable universally. It's certainly not something where we'd be like, you know what, ISIS, at the end of the day, you guys just need to follow your heart. That would be really the remedy we should all embrace. It's something that in the real world, it just doesn't really work. You will never hear a parole officer sitting down with someone who needs parole being like, look, you want to get out of here? There's one way to. Follow your heart. Whatever you desire, do that. You'll never hear, you know, a teacher sitting down with a bunch of junior high kids being like, look, guys, the key to success in life, 
Do whatever you feel like, whenever you feel like doing it, and you will succeed. Or a marriage counselor sitting down and saying, you guys wanna make this work? You need to do whatever you feel like, whenever you feel like it, every time. That's the key to success. Follow your desires. Follow whatever your heart is telling you. I mean, it's insanity. And when you stop to think about it, you're like, man, that, that really is not a helpful thing. And we kind of just mean by it, we just mean like, I believe in you. If you wanna be a doctor, you can. We don't really mean like follow the desires or follow your heart wherever it leads you. And yet if you embrace this idea, it's not just something silly whenever you stop to think about it. It has potentially or usually, if it's taken and embraced and applied in someone's life, extremely dangerous consequences. Dangerous consequences for your relationships, for your own personal kind of well-being, your spiritual health, every arena of your life. If you were to apply this idea of, hey, I'm just gonna follow the desires that I have, it is going to lead you off a cliff. And tonight, we're gonna look at a book, uh, that, uh, the book of Judges, and we're gonna look at the final story in the book of Judges, which is really uh, meant to communicate that very idea, that the book of Judges was a book that was preserved in the history of Israel, and it's a bunch of these true stories that took place, and it was preserved to be a warning shot to the nation. If you follow your heart, it is going to kill you, hurt people around you, and hurt the nation overall. And God said, I want to preserve this book that takes place in a time where there were no kings, and so everyone had the ability to do whatever their heart led them to do or to follow God's law. And God said, hey, there's a group of people in the nation, and really just one story after the next is just tragic, where people decided, hey, I'm gonna follow my heart. And it led to tremendous consequences for the nation, for their families, for people inside of it. So we're gonna look at these different stories that contain some truths applicable to us, but the whole book could be summarized in the last sentence of the book where it says this. In those days, Judges 21, verse 25, Israel had no king and everyone did as they saw fit or your translation may say as was right in their own eyes or as seemed right to them. Everyone, it, this was the you do you of the Bible. In those days, Everyone did what they thought was applicable and what was right for them. And story after story, and God says, I want you to write it down because I want people to know that when they begin to just say, I'm just gonna follow my heart wherever it leads, it has catastrophic consequences for them, for everyone around them, and for, in this case, the nation as a whole. So tonight, here's what we're gonna do. I'm gonna tell you the last story of the book. And so we're gonna watch a movie for about 15 minutes. I'm just gonna tell exactly kind of what happens because this is the craziest story in the Bible. Uh, other than the crucifixion of Jesus, it's definitely the most horrific and brutal story in the Bible. So uh, you're about to hear a story that is not prescriptive about like, hey, go out and do these things. You're about to hear a story that is like, wow, that escalated really quickly. And uh, a story that was preserved to be a warning to you, to me, and to the nation of Israel, to anyone who read it. So the book of Judges is, uh, just to give you a little context of what's going on, Moses, back up, the Old Testament, is all about the nation of Israel. And uh, at some point, Moses leads the people of Israel out of the land of, anybody know? Egypt, that's right, here we go. He leads them out of Egypt, Charlton Heston, let my people go, got the tablets, we're out of here. He goes out of there, God says, Moses, you're not taking them in, Mo. Joshua's gonna lead them into the promised land. Joshua takes them into the promised land, they get to the promised land, they all set up shop, we're on these different lands, different places. Then begins the book of Judges. Joshua dies, and things get a little crazy. Seven cycles 
of the same thing happen over and over and over again. And each one gets worse and worse. Here's the cycle that happens. There's sin, and the nation of Israel would sin against God. They're like, God, you know what? We reject you. God says, great, you reject me. Other people are gonna come in, and they're gonna make you slaves. They would be made slaves. Supplication is just a word that means cry out to God. So basically, they're like, we sin, and then they're made slaves. They're like, we're sorry. And God would send a judge or a savior to come in and to set the people free. A judge was not someone with like a gavel and a robe. He was essentially a military leader who would set the the nation free. So this happens seven different times and it tells us every single time it gets worse and worse and worse until the story we're about to read picks up tonight. And this comes from Judges chapter 19, uh, verses one, really Judges 19 through 21. So I'm gonna just summarize, I'm gonna tell the story because this story is crazy. Here we go, verse one. In those days, Israel had no king. So it's setting up again. It emphasizes this throughout the book. Before there were kings. Now a Levite who lived in the remote area in a hill country of Ephraim took a concubine from Bethlehem and Judah. So basically it starts up with a Levite, it's just a priest. And it says that there was this priest who decided, you know what, I'm gonna take a girl and I'm not gonna make her my wife. She's gonna be like a living girlfriend, which is a concubine. And so we're gonna have sex together and it's, it's gonna be great. Here we go. Not prescriptive Again, descriptive, or in other words, it's not telling you to do this. It's saying this is what happened as people drifted further and further from God. But she, that's a concubine. A concubine is just, again, it's like a living girlfriend. It's someone who's not a wife, doesn't have the privileges of a wife. And she was unfaithful to him. Shocker. She left him and went back to her parents' home in Bethlehem in Judah. She goes back, and after she had been there for four months, her husband was like, hey, where's that girl? So initially, he cheats, she cheats on him. He's like, great, we're done. Thank you, next. Four months go by, and he decides, where's that girl at? And so he goes back to her parents' home. Here's what happens. He went to her parents' home to try to persuade her to return. He had with him his servant and two donkeys, just in case you're wondering. She took her parents, or she took him, when he gets there, into her parents' home. And when her father saw him, he was gladly welcomed. His father-in-law, the woman's father, prevailed on him to stay, so he remained for him for three days, eating and drinking and sleeping there. So basically, what happens next, he's hanging out three days, they're eating and drinking, the father-in-law's like, great, you're the son-in-law I never had, and they're hanging out together, and then after three days, the guy's like, man, I just, I keep waking up, we're partying, I wake up the next day hungover, I need to get out of here, I need to bring her, we're going back home. And the guy says, hey, won't you stay another day? He says, no, I don't wanna do that. Well, just, you know, let's, let's have another meal and hang out a little bit longer and you can eat and drink. And again, the same happens for a couple more days. Finally, the guy is like, hey, I gotta get out of here. So he takes her, begins to journey back home and uh, he left so late in the day, we're told, that he has to stop halfway. Be like, hey, we're going to Austin, but it's in the, or we, it basically gets too dark. We stop in Waco, you with me? They stop in a town called Gibeah. He stops in Gibeah, and he doesn't know anyone there, and he meets this guy, and the guy's like, hey, there's a law of hospitality, big deal at this time, which basically was like, hey, if there's somebody sojourning or traveling through, you welcome him into your home. So the guy's like, hey, you can stay with me. They go into the home, and they're hanging out, and they're eating food. It's him, the concubine, the two donkeys, <laughs> the servant, and this guy. Everybody with me? Any questions so far? Here we go. So they're hanging out. They're eating the food. All of a sudden, this is where things get weird. There's this banging at the door of some people that are from the town that are like, hey, we saw, they basically bang, they're like, hey, Carl, we know you're in there and we know that you have a new friend in town and we want to meet him. The reason I say it gets weird is because this is where they say, and we wanna have sex with him. So there's this group, yes, there's this group, not exactly your average day in Mayberry. 
So there's this group gathering around the outside, and they're like, hey, we got this stranger in town. Let's have sex with him. And the point of the story, the author's including it to make sure you know, hey, this is what happens when you drift away from God. All kinds of just perversion begins to take place in your life, and things just kind of go off the rails. So they're banging on the door, and they're like, hey, we want to have sex with him. And the guy says, hey, no, don't do this crazy, wicked deed. And they won't stop banging on the door. Finally, the Levite, the guy, is like, hey, take my concubine. I'm not even sure that I wanted to take her from her dad's house anyway. And he throws her outside. It's tragic. And what happens next is that all night long, she is abused and abused and abused by this group of men, and eventually she ends up dead to the point where she was sexually abused in such a way that it was so horrific that she's dead on the door. So the Levite wakes up the next day. He walks outside of the house, and there is his concubine dead on the doorstep. And all of a sudden he's going, who are these people? What happened here? It wasn't as though he had done the right thing in general to send her out there doing that, but he was afraid and he just did what he thought was the right thing in the moment, terrible as that was. And he takes her and he takes his body and he puts her on his donkey and he begins to journey back home. And he's thinking to himself, I can't believe how evil this group of people were in this, this area called Benjamin, which is one of the 12 tribes. I'm telling you that for a reason, because at this time there was 12 tribes, one of them was named Benjamin. And he begins to go, I can't believe how evil these Benjamin people were. This is terrible. I need to send a message out to the other 11 tribes. You guys follow me? And he's like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna write a note and let them know how wicked these Benjamin people are. This is unreal. And then he realizes, no one's gonna do anything if I write a note to him. If I just send a message and he's like, hey, there's some really bad people over there, they're not gonna do anything. So then he has an idea. And he begins to think, you know what I should do? I'm gonna cut up her body into 12 pieces and I'm gonna send it to all 12 areas throughout the nation with the message of this is what's going on. There is evil in the land of Benjamin to these people. That'll get people's attention. Not the right thing to do, it's just what he decided to do. So he sends out and he sends, it says literally they cut him limb by limb and he cut him and sent him out all over the area and it got people's attention. Here's what it says in verse 30 of chapter 19. Everyone who saw this was saying, so as the limbs, you know, they're sending out arms and legs and all these things. Everyone who saw it said, such a thing has never been done or seen. Not since the day the Israelites came up out of Egypt. Just imagine, we must do something, so speak up. So in the nation, all of a sudden, there's kind of outrage going on, and people are going, did you hear what happened? Did you hear what happened? And Benjamin, did you hear what happened? So the 11 other tribes, they get together, and they're like, we're not standing for this. We're told they get 400,000 soldiers and they go outside of the area of Benjamin and they say, give us the guys who did this to this woman. Give us the guys who killed this woman. And Benjamin says, nah, we're not doing that. We will judge them on our own laws. They're Benjamites, we're not doing it. So the nation goes to war. It's about to get even crazier. So the nation has a civil war, the very first civil war. And it's 11 verses one. And you would think, that's gonna last about five minutes. But Benjamin actually starts winning. And the first day they start winning and they kill a bunch of the Israelites and the Israelites are, what, it's 11 to one guys? How is this even happening? The next day it comes, same thing happens. Finally, on the third day, the 11 tribes, I mean, by this point, they are angry. They are seeing people die. They're seeing their, their, their people, their fellow soldiers get killed 
for this wickedness in there, and they break through the Benjamites, and they begin, or the Benjaminites, um, they break through, and they, uh, they just begin slaughtering all of the soldiers of Benjamin. And we're told that out of the 28,000 they had, only 600 survive, and they run off into the wilderness. And then they're still so upset, they turn and they go back to the nation, all the 11 tribes, they go to the area of Benjamin and they kill everybody. Every man, every woman, and every child. Because they thought this is such an evil group of people, they can't be allowed to live. They kill everyone. They burn every town that they come to. It's terrible, it's horrible. And so they go back to their homes and a few uh, days later or a short season later, they realize, oh man, we just killed everyone except for 600 people. We just essentially extinguished a tribe, which was a big deal back then. There were the 12 tribes, kind of think like the 13 colonies of America. It'd be like, we just basically eliminated one of the 12, which was a big deal to God. What are we gonna do? Because there's only 600 and they're all men. So they're not procreating. And so what are we gonna do? And they begin to go, man, we can't, allow them to marry any of our daughters because one of the things they promised were told is that, hey, none of you guys are ever gonna marry any of our daughters. And so they begin to go, man, what should we do? And all of a sudden, one guy in the crowd is like, I got an idea. There's only one area of the whole nation that wasn't here to fight with us. I think we should go to their town, uh, a town named Jabesh Gilead, but I think we should go to their town and we should take any of the young unmarried women that we can find. This is getting real. This makes Game of Thrones look tame, people. So they go, here's with me, you with me? So you got 600 people, they're out in the wilderness kind of eating berries, doing whatever, like, hey, we got no women for us. And then all the rest of the tribes are like, we gotta find them some women or else they're gonna be extinct for forever. So they go to this one town, the only town that didn't fight in the Civil War. And they kill everyone except for the unmarried young women. And there's only 400 of them. And if you do the math, there's 600 soldiers, and 400 women, which means there's 200 guys without it. So they basically tell the 600 in the woods, like, hey, we got some good news and bad news. We got 400 women for you. Bad news is we're still looking for 200. And so they come up with another scheme where somebody else in the crowd's like, hey, I got an idea. This seems like a good idea. There's a festival not far from here where once a year, the young unmarried girls will kind of come out and they'll celebrate and they'll dance. And so why don't you 200, this is crazy. I cannot believe this is in the Bible. Why don't you 200 men go over there into those woods over there and when the girls come out here and start dancing, you just charge in and you grab one, take a woman on back to your home with you and that'll be your wife. And so it happens. And the men line up and they kind of like are waiting for the girls to come out and they're just like dancing. This is so great, you know, fire festival, though that never happened. And they're just like, this is gonna be awesome. Here we are, we're hanging out and the guys just come out of nowhere, fee fi fo fum they grab a woman and they run off into the woods. <laughs> and that's how the book ends. Story over. That's it. I mean, literally, this is what the verses say. So that's what the Benjamites did. This is from the last verses of the book. That's exactly what the Benjamites did. While the young women were dancing, each man caught one and carried her off to be his wife. Think about that story telling your kids. Let me tell you about how I met your mom, okay? <laughs> She's out there, so I'm over there in the woods, covered up camo, and uh, it's exactly what happened. They carry her off and they return to their inheritance, they rebuilt their towns, and they settled in town. At that time, all the Israelites left and they went home to their tribes and clans, each to his own inheritance. Verse 25. In those days, 
Israel had no king, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes or as they saw fit. The point of the story is that exact verse at the end, that whenever a person, a people begin to say, hey, you know how I'm gonna live my life? However I feel was right, it's tragic. I mean, think about the story that we just read. When you read, or when you think back about each decision and each moment that took place, it was every single person just doing, hey, that kind of seems right to me. That's a good idea, we should do that. The Levite decides, hey, they, they wanna get after me, I'm just gonna send her out. That seems right to me. If she hadn't ran away or cheated on me, I wouldn't even be in this situation. That seems right. It's not right, but it seemed right to him. That's kind of like what I feel like I should do. The men outside of the town are like, hey, this guy, what's he doing in here? I want to have sex with him. They're doing what seemed right to them. Then the guy's thinking, how am I going to get the attention of a nation? They killed my concubine. I'll cut her up and send her all over the place. As horrific as that is, because that seemed right. That made sense. That's what I feel like I should do. And then the nation comes together and they're like, we can't stand for this. We're going to kill everyone in Benjamin. Because that feels just. Feels like fair to me. It seems right. And then on and on and on. And then, hey, you know, we need to find husbands, or I'm sorry, wives for these men. Let's just go take them from those people. And how are we going to get these other 200? At every turn, if you to replay the story, it's just one person after the next doing like, hey, this is what I feel like I should do in this moment. So I'm going to do it. And the book is setting up, and really the whole purpose of uh, the book is to set up the idea that in those days, it was the wild, wild west. There was no king that was providing reign and rule and law and order. And yet today, we live in a time where the message of judges, I don't know, could ever be more relevant or has ever been more relevant, at least in my life in America. A time where consistently the loudest message that I hear, or I feel like is constantly put in front of us from culture, is, hey, you do you. Do whatever you feel like. No one can tell you who to be. No one can tell you what gender you are. No one can tell you how to have sex. No one can tell you what to do with a child. No one can tell you what to do with your body. No one can tell you what to do. You do you. If it's not right for them, that doesn't mean it doesn't have to be right for you. In the nation of Israel, in the message of the book of Judges, God said, I want you to preserve because it is catastrophic. If people decide that the moral compass, how am I going to live my life? However I feel. He says, any time a people do that, it is catastrophic for that individual, for everyone around them, and for a society as a whole, and we are seeing it take place. So I wanna just cover briefly, because here's the, here's the truth. As crazy as that kind of stuff sounds, like, man, how would, they, how would they do that? They hide in the woods, they run out and grab girls. There is still levels at which, in my heart, in your heart, in our world, we like to be uh, those who do whatever seems right in our eyes. Kind of whatever seems to make sense, whatever's logical, or said another way is most commonly, hey, to kind of follow your heart, follow your desires, wherever they may take you. So I just want to lay out what that looks like today in our world and some of the consequences, and then what it looks like when you submit or surrender to God as the king of your heart. So the first idea I just want to cover, we're just going to do two points, and then we're going to land the plane really quickly here to set up the series. But the first idea that I want to take is what it looks like when your heart is king. When you make your heart king, here's some of the ways that you know that you've made your heart king. Or here's some of the ways that you see people living out, and by heart, I just mean the desires that you have. The heart in the Old Testament, really in the Bible, is synonymous with like you make decisions on your emotions, your desires, your feelings. And here's how you know that you're someone who is 
uh, following their heart, following what seems right to them. On an individual level, we see lots of examples of saying like, man, this is kind of what I think seems right. And that's around the way that people perceive or people see sexuality. How do I know that uh, I'm someone who sees and who's just kind of living not according to what God says, but according to what seems right to me? If in the area of sexuality, I think, you know what? Dude, I would never buy a car without test driving it first. Why would I date or why would I marry someone without first having sex with them? I need to make sure that we're sexually compatible. That would be crazy. Of course, I wouldn't buy a car without test driving. How could I get married without sleeping together? You're someone who is doing whatever is right in your own eyes, who is thinking about it, not as God's word says, but just kind of like, if you begin to think like, oh yeah, that kind of makes sense to me, you are beginning to think like the people in the nation of Judges. And God has consistently said, anytime someone begins to live according to what seems right in their own eyes, it always has catastrophic consequences. And if the way that you perceive sexuality is, hey, you know what, I just feel like this is right for me. Let me, let me define something really quick. How do you know you're sexually compatible? If you are a man and she is a woman, you are sexually compatible. I'm gonna say that again because it feels like this is getting crazier and crazier in this world today. If you are a man, do I need to use anatomy or get a chart up here? If you're a man and she's a woman, you're sexually compatible. It's true. Well, what if our sex life is not off the chain all the time, amazing? It won't be. Newsflash, it won't be. It's a fact. And if you think that it is, you are living in la-la land. You are delusional. And if you're someone who thinks, like, man, I've got to, this has got to be a part of it, you have begun to think like someone who thinks, who lives according to what the heart tells them and acts at least in the uh, area of sexuality according to what seems right in their own eyes. Another one, very common, very related, is the idea of, hey, living together. Of course we need to live together. We need to make sure that we can spend that much time together. Before we get married, I don't want to have a broken home. I don't want to get a divorce. We need to make sure that we move in together. It just makes sense. We can save on rent. You have begun to think not like God thinks, but like the people in the book of Judges think, and you've begun to think, man, I'm going to follow whatever desires that I have. Tragically, as if God's word wasn't enough, even statistically, science, or even psychology and sociology would say that the uh, rate of you, the likelihood of you breaking up goes through the roof when you move in together. Significantly more than those who preserve purity, who walk and, and date according to God's word. But if that wasn't enough, there's scripture. I mean, Hebrews 13 verse four says to keep the marriage bed undefiled. And if you're like, hey, we live together, but we don't have sex together, that's probably even worse because you are training yourself, hey, we're gonna live together and not have sex together, which is not a great recipe for marriage. And if you begin to think like, hey, of course we need to live together, you should be concerned. On a societal level, what does it look like to be someone who follows or the heart is their king? As a society, we have embraced, man, tragic things that mirror the horror that you see in the book of Judges, where you look and you're like, how did you kill that woman? One of the ways that I mean that is around the area of abortion. And this isn't meant to be shameful or anything for, if that's a part of your story, there's so much grace and hope and whatever God's gonna do in your life, I'm confident it's gonna be big and amazing. He's not done with you, he's crazy about you. And he wants to take your, uh, your story and make an incredible testimony for him. It's no past that's a problem for him. But in terms of legislation, think about where our country is headed. Where in the name of, hey, this seems right to me, 
I mean, if it's a woman, she should be able to have, she, it's, you know, her body, her choice, she could do whatever she wants with it, up to nine months. Even if it's like about to be delivered, if it's her body, she shouldn't have to carry or she shouldn't have to care for a child if she doesn't want to. I mean, what if it was some random guy in the bar? Are you telling me that like just one mistake, she's gonna have to have this child? You're gonna ruin two lives because of this? Think about that thinking. Because the conclusion is, you're gonna ruin two lives? No, let's just kill one life. And if that child was three months old, we would all go, that's horrific. What is the difference between a nine-month-old and a one-month-old or a three-month-old? But our society has embraced thinking that like, hey, look, who am I to judge? You know, that seems right to me, it seems fair, it seems like they should have the right to make that decision. And it is tragic, as tragic as it was in the days of the judges around the idea of, of gender. Anytime that you make the heart or feelings God, when you don't pursue the heart of God, but you make your heart a God, that whatever I feel like, whatever my heart identifies as, then I'm gonna pursue that. It always, it, it either ends up in chaos or a cage of enslaving yourself, because I'm gonna do whatever I want, even if it makes me move in the direction of, of being in bondage to the things that I want, or it ends up with just like straight up crazy, like some of the stuff that our nation is embracing is crazy. Maybe the most American city in our country, or at least the largest and at least the most diverse and represented in all that stuff would be what, what city? New York City. Do you know how many genders are recognized in New York City? 31. On NewYorkCity.gov, this is what NewYorkCity.gov shows as the official genders that you can be a part of by gendered, cross-gender, drag, king, drag, queen, femme, queen, femme, no male, FTM, whatever that means, gender bender, Gender queer. This almost reads like a Saturday Night Live skit, and I'm not trying to be offensive or anything. I'm saying, like, this is insane. And we didn't pull this from, like, NewYorkersCrazy.com. We pulled it from NYC.gov. And yet this is the insanity that comes when it's like, hey, what defines male and female is not a penis and a vagina. It is what do you feel like? Butch, which is one of them. Do you feel like a man? Do you feel like a... What do you feel like? And I'm, I'm not trying to cast judgment on anyone. If they've found themselves at a place, I, we'd love to talk and engage in that conversation. I'm saying that when you begin to say the heart is God, rather than pursuing the heart of God, you end up with craziness and chaos and often in a cage of your own making. What do I mean by a cage of that? Think about any, if you've ever, uh, if you've ever experienced addiction, or if you've ever had someone in your life that experiences addiction, the way that you end up in that cage of that addiction, that bondage, that slavery, is by in expressing your freedom, you in pursuing the things that you want to do, and this is awesome and desire to do this, all of a sudden at some point you move in the direction where you trade in your freedom card for a slavery card, and you're no longer free. You can't go without alcohol. You can't go if anyone like me has ever dipped in the past, where you're like, man, I, I no longer can go without dip until you at least reach some point where you're like, hey man, I'm cutting that off because I'm no longer free from this. Or pornography. Or maybe it's a codependency in a relationship, whatever, fill in the blank, an eating disorder. Or anytime you say, I'm just gonna go with what I feel like, it leads to craziness and chaos and oftentimes a cage of our own making, own desire. Sin will always take you farther than you wanna go, cost you more than you wanna pay, and keep you longer than you wanna stay. 
Sin always takes you farther than you want to go, costs you more than you ever wanted to pay. It keeps you longer than you ever wanted to stay. And the message of the book of Judges is that if you as a nation or as a person, wherever you compromise, you at risk being conquered. Whatever you compromise in, you risk being conquered. And God said, I want you to preserve it for my people so that they would not allow their heart to be God and do whatever they see is right to lead and direct their life. The second idea is, hey, what does it look like when God is the king of your heart? Here's what's fascinating. So 100 years later, so the book of, Judge ended, book of Judges ends, and it sets the stage for like, hey, we need a king because we are crazy. And so they, they cry out to God, we need a king, we need a king. Three kings in, a guy named Solomon, with this right in the rearview mirror, begins to think about this idea, and he begins to think about the heart and what, what leads and directs people, and he says, man, it, it's not that you should listen to what you think is right, listen to what your heart says, and he writes this proverb in Proverbs chapter three, verse five and six, that really instructs the way that as believers, we're to think about how to live our life, how to make decisions, how to inform ourselves, and how to live. He says this in Proverbs chapter, five, or chapter three, verse five. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart, don't trust in your heart. Don't trust in your desires. Don't trust in your emotions. Take all of those emotions, those feelings, desires, the things that are inside of you, and surrender and trust those to God. What does that look like, Solomon? Glad you asked, he would say. Lean not on your own understanding and what you think you should do, is another way of saying that. But in every way, submit to him, or in all of your ways, submit to God. Submit to God's word. Submit to what God's word says. And what's gonna happen if you do that? He will make straight your paths. He will make straight your life. He will bring you to a place where all of a sudden the life that you have is not all jacked up and messed up. He will bring you to a place that is the life that you want where you're not experiencing bondage in every direction and chaos and relational dysfunction and one breakup after the next, after the next, after the next, ending up with one loser or one, uh, I don't know how to say loser, loser, after the next. but it's gonna involve you taking your thoughts and taking those desires and taking those emotions and not saying, you know what, maybe I should do these 50-50, split them, but saying, God, I take all of these and I surrender to you. Whatever your word says about any arena, I'm gonna try to submit my life to it. I'm not gonna do it perfectly and I'm gonna invite other people. If they see my life not living consistent with your word, not submitting my ways to him, I'm gonna invite them to come into my life and speak and say, hey, I see this, the way that you're handling marriage, the way that you're handling dating, the way that you're thinking about sexuality or alcohol or work or money, if they point out any of the ways that I'm not living consistent with your Bible, the scriptures, with God's word, your teachings, where I'm not submitting to you, I want them to call that out because I wanna have, at the end of the day, a life that is made straight, that is not full of brokenness in every direction. That's a life that I think everyone in this room would say, man, that's the type of future I would love to have not one where I look and I'm like I'm 58 years old and I still act like I'm the frat daddy. I mean, everyone has seen that person in their life. They're like, dude, you never left college. Like, you are still living for that keg stand, dude. It's true. And they've gone through one broken relationship and one divorce after the next. Is that the person you're gonna be? And here's the remedy, here's the key. Because every one of us is gonna walk out of this room and you have a heart. There's a GPS inside of you called a heart and it is broken. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse nine says that the heart is deceitful above everything. Think about that. It is utterly sick beyond cure. That's exactly the verse. Jeremiah 17, verse nine, that the heart is deceitful. You have something inside of you that is a broken GPS. I don't know if you've ever had an iPhone that has like an off GPS. It's a really frustrating thing. 
or an Android for our Android people. You guys have maps on there? Um, <laughs> you got to stop hating on Android. This is great. I love Androids. Don't, don't email me. Uh, if you've ever had a, a phone that has a broken map where you're like, hey, this is telling me right now that I'm at the American Airlines Center and that's really frustrating because I know, I don't know a lot, but I at least know that I'm not there. And so in order for me to move in any direction, I've got to be able to know where I am. I've got to know where I need to go and have something that can guide and lead and direct me. That is what God's word is meant to be. That you are not to listen to the things inside of your heart because your heart, according to the Bible, is utterly sick and beyond cure, in need of curing. And that curing can only happen in walking with Jesus. And he has given you instructions and teachings, not for you to make the heart God, not for you to make your heart and your desires king, but for you to make him God, the king of your heart, and submit all of your ways to him. And he promises if you will do that as it relates to dating, to sex, to money, to alcohol, to friends, whatever you submit, I will make it straight. Whatever you submit to me, whatever you entrust to my care, I will lead you to uh, straight paths to a life full of freedom and blessing and peace. But whatever you hold on to, you're working with a broken GPS. So good luck. That's what the message of the book of Judges is. Every time that we see this, I mean, this happens in all of our lives. If you talk to any of us down front afterwards, any of the volunteers that work here, all of our staff that's candidly on staff, it's every one of us just has a past full of brokenness where God has come in and we were formerly trying to be our own king and our heart was the thing that made our decisions and that's what we followed in life. And at some point, God in his grace just kind of got a hold of us and we were like, man, I believe Jesus is who he says he is. He's the savior of the world. He died for my sins. He paid for everything I ever did on the cross. He rose from the dead. And we accept and believe that. And I can have eternal life, not because I'm a good person, because what he did. And we begin to walk and live out according to the scriptures, and it changed everything. I was, reading, I was talking with a few friends today, and, and a few of them were sharing their story, and I just wrote them down where it said, this was from my friend Mark. He said, I was following my harp, and I ended up divorced and then committing an affair afterwards with one of my friend's wife for a year. I was depressed, I was broken. And in the midst of all that, somebody sent me a message and I listened and I heard the gospel. My life was changed. I married another woman, I'm walking with Jesus. My life has been radically changed. Another friend was saying that, hey, I followed my heart and it led me to constantly needing approval of others to weed alcohol, a string of destruction that led me to have an abortion eventually. But with Jesus and him coming in and him being king over my heart, I found the love that I was searching for. I feel free and I'm not living for my glory but for his. Another said that, hey, I followed my heart into partying, into drinking, into drugs, depression, and I was constantly looking for the next high. It was never enough. And then Jesus came in as king of my heart and I found freedom. I found life to the full, what I had never known before. I feel known and fully loved by the God who created me. Whatever you hold on to is something where you're saying, God, I want the broken GPS to guide my life, not you. And you are saying to the God who's there, hey, I want crooked, broken paths, not straight, peaceful, healed ones. But he's invited you just like he invited the, the people in the book of Judges. Will you surrender and submit to me? That was the whole message. The point of the book of Judges was God who gave them the law, said, hey, will you walk with me? I want you to not be ruled by a king. I want you to be ruled by me, God, he said to them. And yet they rejected him and said, we don't want that. Eventually they said, we want a king. And in the next books ahead, and uh, maybe we'll teach those someday, they basically, they finally got a king. And they got one king after the next after the next. Here's what they all had in common. 
They were imperfect rulers. They were broken. And the nation rebelled and didn't want them as king over and over and over again because they put laws. But here's what, here's what every earthly king couldn't do, and it was all setting up the king of kings to come, which is Jesus. Every earthly king would always rule from the outside with law. And Jesus came, and it was a foreshadowing all throughout the Old Testament. There will one day come a king who will rule from the inside, not through the law, but through love. And to the people, the nation of Israel, through the book of Judges, he said, if you allow your heart to reign, your heart to rule, you will lead yourself off a cliff. But if you allowed me, and eventually what they would see is the love that he had for them displayed on a cross, you will lead yourself to life. I'll close here and then the band can come up. When I was in college, I, uh, I spent like a, a month or a little bit over a month in this village in uh, West Uganda. And while I was there, we had a chance to go rafting on the Nile River, um, which was awesome. It was crazy. And, uh, and we went rafting and one day we set out and we're, we're going um, down and there's these class five rapids, which are just big. And, um, and eventually we kind of get uh, to this cliff and this um, uh, waterfall, if you will, a small one, and we head down and we get smashed up against a rock and we're stuck. And we're beginning to go like, hey man, we can't stay here. There's gonna be water that's filling up the raft. Like we've gotta do something. And it's literally kind of getting boomeranged around this rock. And we're wondering, what do we do? And we kind of move to the front and move to the back and how do we get off of this thing? And all of a sudden one of the guides comes up and he jumps onto the rock and he begins to tell us what to do. And begin to say, like, hey, here's what you need to do, and here's move over here. In that moment, we all had a decision. There's like six of us on the raft. We could go, like, hey, man, what do you know, okay? We've been here trying to get this thing worked out. We've been here trying to get off of this rock, and all of a sudden, you show up. You think you can just tell us what to do? Or we could say, you are our guide. You do this every day. You know exactly what you're doing. And so I'm going to trust you because we don't want to be stuck here. And so I have the choice, or we had the choice, are we going to, like, you know, do what he says, submit and say, all right, nothing else has worked, I'll try that. Or are we going to say, man, that, that may work for you, that doesn't work for me. And of course, in that moment, we're on a raft in the middle of the Nile. We're going to do what he said. Some of you in the room, the God of the universe is speaking to you and saying, hey, are you going, if you want to get unstuck, there is a way. No matter what you're in, no matter what you're walking through, no matter what you feel like you're stuck in right now, there is a path towards freedom. Whether it's pornography, whether it's drug addiction, whether it is alcohol, whether it's a just broken string of relationships, whether it is self-hate, the God who's there doesn't want you to continue to be unhealed. And he's not gonna fully heal you in a moment, in a second. But by his spirit, that's the process that Jesus brings all Christians through. Where he says, hey, if you want to get unstuck, there is a guide. There is one, Jesus, who by his spirit, his word, and his people wants to set you free. And when you get stuck again, he wants to be there to set you free. That's the journey of the Christian life. And the question for you and me is not, is there a God there? It's will you submit to him? Are you gonna listen to him? Are you gonna keep holding on thinking, you know what, I know better than you. You may be God, you made all of the universe and everything, but I think that I know better or you know, I don't really care that much right now. I think that you know, my way is probably just as good. You know how arrogant that is? That's like my, my three-year-old son when we're driving in the car and he's like, hey, are you sure you know where you're going, Dad? I'm like, yeah, you can't spell car and uh, you're gonna give me a lecture? It's ridiculous. The eternal God of the universe who made you, who knows exactly the number of hairs on your head and you're gonna say, I, I think my way is just as good. I'm gonna hold on to it. 
Are you going to submit to the guy, the one who's crazy about you, who stretched out his arms to die for you? Whatever you're stuck in, there is a path towards healing. But it takes you waving the white flag and saying, man, I submit. I'm willing. I want to be unstuck more than I want to hold on to this. I want to be free. The choice is yours. It's all of ours every day. Let me pray. Father, I pray for my friends in the room who are stuck in the shadows of shame of a past decision that they made that they've never told anyone about. That you would pierce through those shadows with light and they would open up and have a conversation. They would be uh, willing to come forward and talk to a friend or talk to another believer in their life. Maybe it's someone who's walking through and they're just, they're in shackles right now and they know it and they won't admit it. That the desire to be free would be more real or more overwhelming than the desire to come out in fear of what that may look like. Father, would you help us to walk with you, to submit to the guide? Would you take more ground in my life, the areas of my heart, where I'm prone to act like the people in the nation of Israel and not submit to the one true king or submit my heart to him, God. Would you help us to know you, to love you? I pray for anyone in this room who's never put their faith in Jesus. They've never accepted the free gift of eternal life that God, tonight that would change forever. They would forever be changed because they would accept that you're not demanding them do a bunch of good things for them. You did something on their behalf. You're not demanding something from them. You did something for them. You're giving your life so they wouldn't have to work their way to you. They could have relationship with you that tonight they'd accept that. Thank you for preserving the message in the book of Judges that when we do as seems right to us, there are consequences. But because of the cross, we can walk with our king and experience straight paths where that take place. Amen.